I was uh, chatting with my seven-year-old this week and um, making my coffee, and she had her Bible out. She was ready to go for some Devo time with Dad, and she said, Dad, tell me to look up something. And uh, I said, okay. And uh, so I said, why don't you turn to the back, and why don't you find a word in the back there that you don't know? Let's, let's just discover a word. So she turned to the word parable, and she said, what's a parable? I said, well, what's it say? So she reads the definition of a parable. And um, anyway, we just had kind of a good little chat. Our, our devotion time was, was learning about how Jesus told stories to teach. And um, I bring that up because of this. Jesus told three stories that were really one story. He told them back to back to back, as best I can tell in the scriptures. And he spoke of, um, of a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And really, although it's three distinct looking stories, it's kind of one story. And the point of the one story is this. Jesus is telling this story to say this, that rebels matter to God. Because in the lost coin and the lost sheep and in the lost son, there's really a hero of the story, and that is the one that goes looking for and finds great joy in finding that which was lost. And what did Jesus say he came to do? To seek and to save what? The lost, that which was lost. I just kind of tell you that by way of introduction this morning because the season of December is a unique season in our culture. It's a unique opportunity for us. Um, if, if you think of the fact that God... Um, loves rebels and rebels matter to God as something outside of yourself, um, let me just gently nudge you to look inwardly for a second. When I hear that, I say, praise God for him being merciful. Praise him that I matter to him as a rebel. Uh, in addition, I hope that our hearts, especially in December, are mindful that there, there is a world looking for something to worship. We're ceaseless worshipers. And so at Christmas time, I was driving around yesterday doing some errands, and I passed several of my friends' churches in this city. And you know what? I just prayed for them. I just prayed for their churches. I prayed for our church, that the name of Christ would be lifted up, and that, and that Jesus would draw people to himself. Part of how Jesus draws people to himself is you right here in this room, is that you're, you're there and looking to... Um, to pass that blessing on. Now, um, I came across a saying uh, that, I, that was new to me. Maybe you've heard it before, uh, but I've been chewing on this a little bit, and we like the word share a lot around here. We talk about it quite a bit. And it says this, to keep a blessing, share it. And my challenge to you this Christmas season, starting now, if you haven't already been doing so, is this, just to look in how can I be sharing what, what God has given me in Christ. How can I do that? In tangible ways, inviting people, talking to people, giving of my time. What does it look like to keep the blessing by sharing it and giving it away? Jesus was on mission. How about you? What are you sharing this week? I hope you have some rebels on your Christmas list. I hope you have some blatant rebels on your Christmas list that you are praying for and thinking about often. Praise God that someone at some point had me on their list and was praying for me into the kingdom of God. All right, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to that famous Christmas passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, which uh, I'm sure you hear every Christmas season, but uh, we're going to do it again. So uh, some of you are like going to your start of your Bible, like, where is that 1 Thessalonian book? Uh, find it, and we will be reading from there this morning. We talked last week, this is really kind of part two of the Christmas adventure, that this is a season of anticipation. 
And uh, we do all sorts of different kinds of things around this time of year that we don't normally do. One of those is we feed chocolate to our children every morning in the month of December. And uh, my daughter, once again, I was making coffee. This happens every morning. Uh, I'm making my coffee, and sometime this week, my daughter uh, peels back her little uh, calendar, and he pull, she pulls out a piece of chocolate, and she goes, what on earth does a squirrel with a nut have to do with Christmas? And we kind of pondered that, and we were both half groggy. I hadn't yet taken a sip, so I had no idea. I had the foggiest idea what that did. But she didn't really seem to mind. She just popped it in her mouth and ate her breakfast like a good girl. We're doing this little two-week series uh, leading up to Christmas because what we want to do is we want to we want to worship Christ this Christmas, and we do all sorts of things. I think in December, and certainly I've had to do some unlearning. I feel like God's been working on my heart these past few years. Some unlearning of crazy things we do at Christmas time that really have nothing to do with Christ or worshiping Him or celebrating Him. So this two-week series is really saying that we're living through a season of worship and much of what goes on has nothing to do with Christmas. Much like a chocolate squirrel with a nut. And we just go, when we stop and think about it, we go, what does this have to do with anything? Why am I doing this? But sometimes we swallow it down like my daughter did. We talked uh, this idea that Advent is a Latin word for coming. And last week we looked back toward the coming of Christ the first time, and this time we're looking forward. We just sang of this, the incarnation, which means in the flesh. And we talked about this idea that God is weaving this adventurous story. He's the grand author, and he's been writing this story. And as time has marched on, it's actually only intensified the plot, so to speak. What I want to do for you is this, especially if you missed last week. We're going to, we're going to start from uh, a little bit of where I was last week in prophecy and move right up to where we're going to pick up the story right now. So watch this two-minute video, and you'll, uh, you'll kind of be caught up on things. So last week, we spent some time looking at the prophecy that led up to the birth of Christ. The story doesn't start with the birth of Christ, does it? It's a story that God's been working for a long time. And as we read the prophecies, they didn't just have to deal with his miraculous birth and the time and place and manner or his vocation, but actually what happens when he dies and what happens after he dies. And these things were foretold in the scriptures of old, written long before Jesus walked the earth. It says that Jesus' innocent sacrifice would become our peace. And I think sometimes we sing these words, we see these words written on people's lawns, and we wonder if this is really true or really possible. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I don't know if you read the news. I don't know if you are dealing with struggles in the office or at school with your kids or in your own home. But sometimes I think about peace and goodwill toward men, and I look at that and say, is this a possibility or is this a pipe dream? And you can look at it and say, so much is broken, so much is falling apart. Now, like any good adventure story, um, there there have been there have been a handful uh, that that really highlight the return of something. Now, two quick movie posters for you: one from my childhood, and one from a little bit more recent. But there was a Jedi and a King that returned, and those are just two great movies. And we love this storyline, don't we, of the return of someone who is in authority. Someone who is in power and is going to enter into the darkness and there's been a long time of things and they're going to set it right and all the wrongs are going to be undone and they're going to free people forever from these kind of birth pangs that we're in right now. 
Now, if that sounds a little bit Christian to you, it is. That's really the story that God's unfolding for us. And when I see a movie that lifts that, um, I don't have any problem with that. I think that's actually pretty compelling that that's our story. That really is the Christian story. That's the longing. That's why my heart gets excited when I watch a movie like that. And I'm like, yes, the king is back. And he's setting things right again. And what we're talking about this morning is the adventure. And really, last week we looked, we looked backwards. This week, we're looking ahead to the second coming. And the Advent season really is that. It's the coming of Christ in the, in, in the birth of, of Jesus. And it's the coming of Christ. It's looking forward to his return where he will set things right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. I want to read through the end of the chapter. And um, I will explain momentarily why we're reading this at Christmas time with lots of evergreen around us and twinkling lights. You'll get it shortly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says this. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord, We who are still living, when the Lord returns, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First the Christians who have died will rise from their graves, then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Does that encourage you this morning? I hope it does. I hope that that is a great encouragement. I hope that we're actually used to speaking in these terms and used to hearing about people's issues. A brother came up to me and, and shared with me some, some really, in the grand scheme of things, trivial is, uh, issues this morning. Stuff that we all deal with. Stuff that breaks and doesn't last for long. You bought it thinking it would run well. It doesn't. It falls apart. And you want to kick something. Usually it's a tire, hopefully. And and on the tip of our tongue, in our mindset, ought to be this idea that says, man, we're not long for this world. We're not even made for this world for, for a long time. Aren't you glad? And to and to keep this, this forward-looking thought process in our minds. Now, reading about death and grief... Uh, could be kind of weird at Christmas, but it's the hope of the return of Christ that we rise or fall on as Christians here. And so to speak about that and to not gloss over it, not to just um, paint a picture like it's not there and to ignore it is, is what Christians are about. We hope in a return and we hope in a way that doesn't allow room for despair. Some of you might be sick right now. Uh, one of our family members recently called, this week, called our family um, a petri dish. Uh, I think it was meant in love. I'm not positive, but um, but we uh, we had uh, two of our two of our children um, had ear infections this week. Um, a couple of them were vomiting. Uh, several had fevers. 
We recently brought our child home from Ethiopia, and he brought two early Christmas presents. We got his blood work back, and not only was, is pneumonia in our home, but Giardia is in our home. So two with Giardia. So I literally am on a first-name basis with the pharmacist at Kaiser. So I just made a new friend this week, which is a lot of fun. Um, but as I, as I look at our house, and I see the sickness... And I see uh, my little seven-year-old just moaning about the fact that she hasn't eaten in a couple of days or anything. She can't hold anything down. And how much her tummy hurts and how much we want to take it away. It was a beautiful picture. My wife, uh, my wife had shared some things. I happened to overhear it. As I'm tucking her in that night, she said this. She's really miserable. She's really moaning. And she says, Daddy, Mommy came and told me that if she could, she would be sick for me and so that I wouldn't have to be. And I just about broke down. And I just talked about Jesus. Just shared the gospel with my daughter. And she said, yeah, I know that story. And yeah, that makes sense. And I I get how that is. But I look around at sickness in our home and I think to myself, there's coming a day when those of you who today are, are ailed with illness and pain that's not going away and people don't have answers for, there's coming a way when all of that is going away forever and we're getting our new bodies. That's an encouraging message. Some of you have spent time in the hospital this week, either for yourself or visiting a neighbor or ministering to someone. And to bring the hope of that, a doctor comes and brings hope of medicine and hope of what we know of different things. But a Christian is able to come and to say, there is coming a conquering king that when you're being attacked at a little cellular level and your body's breaking down, that war is won by King Jesus. And that day's a coming. So pointing people toward that. Some of you have been to some funerals this year. Looking back on 2011, it was a hard year. You say, wow, some of those were expected, and and some of those were just a shock to me and really unexpected and very, very difficult. And death is certainly, whether it's expected or a surprise, it's never welcome. It's an enemy. Death is an enemy of a, a world under a curse. Thinking about 2012, I wonder if you are fearful or hopeful as you look to 2012. Because we don't know. Maybe one of you is going to be preaching my funeral this next year. Maybe I'm going to be preaching some of your funerals this year. We just don't know the timing of things. And as a Christian, we don't enter into that. We don't stare death in the face in the same way as those who have no hope of Christ's return. As those who have no, uh, no hope. So sickness and death and turmoil and these things that we see are actually caused to remind us we have a reason to celebrate. Isn't it interesting? I mean, here I've been uh, in some different countries. I know some friends of mine just got back from Mexico, uh, and we're and we're in a different location than we currently are. And anytime you travel almost anywhere else, you come back and realize we are living in the land flowing with milk and honey. We are living in the promised land, in essence. Is if if Earth, you know, if, if this is all there is, and Earth is putting it out, we're we're getting most of it. I know it seems troublesome at times. But isn't it interesting that even in a land flowing with milk and honey, with all kinds of things at our fingertips, there's still a longing, isn't there? There's still a deep longing that says, man, this world is a messed up place. There has to be something more. And that's the beauty of the Christian message. Now, some of this eager anticipation and and expectation uh, is going on. Uh, How many of your kids are out of school, or kids, if you are in here, out of school? Good, good, Good news? Yeah, some of the adults are in here saying, yeah, we're finals are done. Uh, we're out of school. That's always a great thing. It's an eager uh, expectation, anticipation. Let me give you a little secret because I'm friends with some of them. Your teachers are thrilled too. Okay, they are. They're pumped to just be like, here, take them for a while. 
Can't wait till next year. Um, but uh, but on a on a on a bigger level, um, as we as we eagerly await, as we eagerly anticipate, it's great to have this season because we we think about things sometimes a little bit more clearly. Um, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, by writing uh, and inspiring those who wrote the scriptures, were really clear about something. They were really clear and wanted to really get a message across that says the return of Christ is imminent. It's going to happen any moment. And it also uh, is telling us, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that we're to be ready, that we shouldn't be surprised by it, and that we shouldn't be lulled into a slumber. Now, the hope of the resurrection uh, is not a future wish. Sometimes people put that kind of as a, as a future wish, some, something out there. And, and Satan will play with your minds and your own just, your own just uh, framework that, that we're bound by uh, tends to start asking these kinds of questions. Um, gee, it's been a long time. I wonder when Christ, when, when are you going to return? Is it going to be this year? Is it going to be before the end of this year? And so we, we find ourselves uh, sometimes asking those kinds of questions. Rather than the, the resurrection being a future wish, I would say this, that instead it's actually a past, present, and future reality. I think Martin Luther actually captured this, this idea really, really well when he said this. Let us live as though Christ was crucified yesterday, risen today, and coming tomorrow. I mean, what if it was really that imminent, that, that, that we realized it was yesterday that he was crucified. Today he was risen. And that tomorrow he's coming back. In, in God's economy, I'm not sure exactly how it works. I, I freely confess, there's lots of wonder here. But it must look something more like that, right? Where it's just shrunk down and he wants his children to say, come on, time is short. I mean, it's right here. It's upon us. I want to wrap up our time. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. And I love that we're celebrating communion. And, and as we were looking at some Christmas songs and singing them just now, there's so much, um, there's so much just incarnation language, uh, in, in, in these, in these great Christmas hymns, Christmas songs, Christmas carols that we sing. And, um, I want to, I want to wrap up our time before we move into communion by finishing out this first Thessalonians passage. Look with me at chapter five. And chapter five essentially begins to give us some of the how. How are we, um, how are we, how are we to live in this mindset that says Christ's return is imminent? And what does it look like to anticipate that? First Thessalonians five one says this. Now concerning how and when all this will happen, picking up from verse 4, the return of Christ, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is the time when, when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. 
Verse 9. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out His anger on us. Christ died for us, so that whether we are dead or alive when He returns, we can live with Him forever. And then he repeats this refrain that he ends chapter 4 with. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. There's a solemn warning in the words here, even as there is encouragement. There's these future events that are spoken of, and they will be both terrible and wonderful. And he makes a clear distinction of those who are children of the light and those who are children of the darkness and night. For both it will be a surprise. Some will be asleep. Some will be sober and awake and ready. There's a challenge here to be on our guard and sober. What a, what a great reality in verse 9 that God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was His willing. It was His doing. Much in the same way that He chooses to go seeking after the rebels, those who are lost but are now found. So how can this, how can this directly affect our worship? Maybe a different way of saying it for a Christian is this. How must this dictate our worship this Christmas season? How must this, how must this take our thoughts and focus them where they ought to be focused? I want to just give you two words that I see uh, in this passage, and um, they're kind of our application this morning. One is to watch. There's just a clear, sober watchfulness that is being commanded of us. We're told elsewhere in Scripture uh, not to get drunk with wine, but to be filled up with the Spirit of God. And I thought that would be an appropriate tie-in here, since this specifically talks about drinkers getting drunk at night. This isn't a message necessarily about alcohol or getting drunk, but I do want to say this. For those of you filled with the Holy Spirit, for those of you walking according to the Spirit, for those of you looking to say, God, today, this morning, this hour, I want to be filled up with your Spirit. There's a genuine freedom and peace that comes with that. Because when you want to know the will of God and you're full of the Spirit, the quite simple answer is you do whatever you want. You do whatever you want. Because you're filled with the Spirit. You're submitted to the Spirit. You're suffering for Jesus. You're walking in His ways. So you do whatever you want. There's a freedom and a peace in that. Instead of a scrambling and always wondering, God, what is it you want me to do? I hope this season, as you're watching, as you're keeping sober, as you're looking to be filled up with the Spirit, that you would experience that. Being filled with the Spirit will allow this, that you won't get duped for settling for kind of trinkets here on earth. I love these car commercials. The other day there was a car commercial that came on in the midst of a football game or something. And, um, and it shows this wife giving her husband a brand new car for Christmas. I don't really know who does this, to be totally honest. Um, I mean, you know, the guy's sitting here and he unwraps the key and there's a giant bow and a brand new Lexus SUV or whatever. So I kind of teased my wife and I just, you know, I, I wondered if she knew which color I wanted and which car it made because I haven't been talking about it a lot. Um, but evidently people do this. Um, and I, I just kind of laugh because, um, you know, if you need a new car and it's kind of a fun time to do it, okay, I mean, I guess so. Um, but, but honestly, um, I, I would say for, for much of my life, I really struggled with understanding it's more blessed to give than to receive. And my fleshly nature just kept saying, 
that's a good thing to say because I think it helps you get more stuff. I mean, like it's always it was always just about, I wish that were true of my life, but it's just not true. And when Jesus grabbed a hold of my heart, I just prayed. I said, Lord, I know this must be true, but, but you're going to have to make this true in my life because I just don't see that. I just don't get it. I had one of my kids of his own free will come up to me this week and say um, how excited he was about giving a, a, a Christmas present this, this year. And that was a switch. That was a change because usually uh, my kids have been about what they're getting. And I really resonated with that. And as much as we would tell them these truths, it would usually center back on what they were getting. But isn't it true that we can be duped into thinking that what we're going to get this year for Christmas is really going to satisfy? That having this person home and being together again, it's going to make everything better. And much like little kids, we don't change that much from five-year-olds who get it and it either breaks right away, they play with it for a very short period of time and they lose interest in it. I mean, the joy never lasts for long. And yet it doesn't take but 11 months for us to forget that lesson and start the whole process over again and just be scrambling to figure out what do I want, what am I going to give. Being filled with the Spirit, having a sober watchfulness in this season says, I am not going to get duped into trinkets of this world that are going to break and miss the gift that's been given me in Christ. I love Kel's prayer. The greater gift is even the fact that he's coming again. The greater gift is that we get to go and live with him there forever. And nothing will be able to separate us from that. He also brings in the idea of the armor of God here, wearing our, as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. That means that this is going to be a war. Your watchfulness in this season to say, God, I'm going to be watchful and sober and expectant on your return is going to be a battle. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, we don't just fall into this. We don't just wake up and say, and I am blind to the stuff of this world. It has no hold on me whatsoever. All I ever do is think about the return of Christ. Man, there is constantly things pulling for you at your attention, catching your eye as you drive by. People spend millions of dollars figuring out how to get you to look and buy. And so it's a war. It's a war that we're in. The second word here is this, the word remember. As we enter into communion, think about this. There's still hope. I've been seeing a lot of messages like this. There's still time to buy. Ship today and you can still get it here by December 24th and all of this. That's all fleeting. And in a couple of weeks, you know, all you're left with is a credit card bill for, for, for many people. There's still hope. And so to think in your life, whatever is going on in your life today, I want to preach this message to you. There is still hope. Some of you are wrestling with your job, with your finances, with relationships that seem to go deeper and deeper and deeper into a pit, and you can't see the bottom. You've dropped the stone and you're listening and it's not hitting anything. It's still falling. Can I just hold out to you? There's still hope. There's the hope of Christ's return. 
I love that we're challenged to encourage each other and build each other up just as we're already doing. I want to compliment you as a church body. I think this church body has been remarkable at speaking truth into one another's lives. I love, it thrills me as your pastor to walk by a conversation and just catch out of the corner of my ear that, that the conversation is being, is being redirected to Christ. Not in a cliche religious way where everything just, well, brother, give it over to Jesus. And then we just leave it at that. But rather, <laughs> don't you love when I put on my southern accent? I offend whole states at a time when I do that, I'm sure. Um, but, but I say that because we've been there. We've had that happen to us. And we say, you know, instead of praying for me, why don't you come be the answer to your own prayer and encourage me and be with me through this? Why don't you lift a finger and come and just come get under with me and just, and just help, help walk with me in this? A friend loves at all times. Why, why don't you come and just weep with me? I, I just need you to come weep with me and be with me. I'm struck every time I walk out of a hospital that there is an ongoing perpetual need in hospitals and old folks' homes around our community always to just walk in there and just start meeting with people. People are starved for attention. People are starved for dialogue and just sitting down and and telling a little bit of their story. Remember that there's still hope. Another way of saying remember is don't forget and God created kind of the, a, a perfect time for not forgetting to happen on a regular basis. How many of you eat at least once a day? Raise your hand. Okay? Yeah. My son was the first to put his hand up. He eats like five times a day. If you eat at least one time a day, here's what's happening. You are being given a built-in time to stop and do something. Um, I remember going through a season of time where I wondered, why do we have to pray before every meal? I grew up in a house where we prayed before almost every single meal. And and as one who was more conscious of myself than God at one point, I really worried about that in a restaurant. Like, gosh, this feels really weird that we have to stop and pray. Now, I think meal times are a powerful time to stop and just, uh, for us, most of the time, many nights, most many meals that we can, we're at a table looking at each other as a family. And the family meal is a time to remember. It's time to remember who we are, to talk about who we are. It's not a formal thing. Dad doesn't break out the remember list and we start going through a checklist. But it's just a time to gather. We have to do it anyways. Let's slow down, put down our work, and just be with each other. Isn't it amazing that God built in meal times and fellowship and it's woven through all of Scripture? In Eden, uh, Adam and Eve are told, take and eat. And there's fellowship there. Of course, we know the story of Eden is that fellowship was broken. There's a partial restoration that goes on with all the feasts that are commanded. God commands His people to feast. Isn't that good news? And that is great news. I love those parts of the Bible. And it says, gather together, stop what you're doing, and just feast. And there's different places where it says, and enjoy the fellowship of the Lord. Now, the Old Testament looked forward to to, to Messiah. Hebrews 10 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What it's talking about is that this old sacrificial system, these old feasts, all of these were actually pointing towards something. They were pointing toward when Messiah would come. Right? And so these were kind of a a broken form of that. 
Hebrews continues on, otherwise they would they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is hearkening back to the broken fellowship at Eden. And feasts and festivals and sacrifices are, are commanded by God, always and ever pointing toward this perfect unblemished lamb. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. And in John chapter 1, he points to Jesus. He says, there he is. He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's his proclamation that says, Christ is here. He's come. Something dramatic is changing. And as we enter into communion and thinking about the, the perfect sacrifice of Christ, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's our word, remember. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Really simple message this morning. First Thessalonians 4 is talking about those who have died and those of you who are alive and fearful of death. Don't mourn like those who have no hope. Those of you who are Christians have a hope that you are going to be resurrected just as Christ was resurrected. And then chapter 5 goes on to point to being watchful and remembering. Complete restoration is coming. And if you get to the end of the book, let me continue this meal theme for a moment. We're about to have some holiday meals here. But there's coming a meal in Revelation 19 that says this, and the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That there is going to be a meal at the end of time when we are gathered back together and that broken, that broken fellowship is going to be restored completely. Some of your family stories mirror kind of this biblical story. You, you had some fellowship. It's been broken. You've tried to come back. Some of your holiday meals, I know, because I'm going to live through them too. Some of those holiday meals are tense, aren't they? It's there. It's a shadow of fellowship, but it's still broken. And to think that one day what we're, what we're pinning our hopes on, what we're looking forward to and anticipating like a kid on Christmas Eve, is this complete restoration of Jesus Christ. I want to invite the band to come up now and the ushers to get our elements. The way we're going to do communion this morning is um, there is just going to come a, a tray that's going to be passed to you. And I would just invite you as the tray comes by to take the little piece of cracker and the cup and to hold it in your hand. And when you're ready, we're not going to do this together. You just take it as it comes by. And... We remember these words that Jesus spoke, saying, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a time, this is a, a meal, as it were, for us to come and stop and remember. The way that that 1 Corinthians passage, by the way, ends this, I alluded to it last week, is this. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So as we're, as we're remembering an event that happened 2,000 years ago, let's not marginalize it and put it away in a box for 11 more months out of the year. 
Rather, let's remember that just like the Advent season, we're remembering an event that affects us today that we're proclaiming and is going to culminate in a future date. Could be tomorrow, could be next year, could be in a couple decades. Who knows? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have left us with such a tangible reminder of the sacrifice that you gave. I praise you, Father, that you actually tell us to celebrate your death, which would be so counterintuitive. But that we understand that Jesus, without your perfect sacrifice, we are still locked in a sacrificial system where our sins are just pushed forward for one more year, put off. But here we can celebrate this morning the renewal that comes from understanding that my sin is forgiven. That my unrighteousness is blotted out. That I'm cleansed from every imperfection. And that I'm able to, as it were, put on your righteousness, Jesus. Your perfection. So that we can have fellowship with you for all time. As we take these elements, we pray that your name, Jesus, would be lifted high. And we do this proclaiming your death and celebrating it until you come again. In Jesus' name.